They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. And in what might be the most honest prayer ever prayed, Jesus prays these words. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. I don't think this scene is what I had in mind when I first decided that I wanted to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. In my mind, I thought I was going to be multiplying food, turning water into wine, gaining the respect of my peers, you know, the fun stuff. Well, it's all this sorrow to the point of death business. It's why I always thought the Gospel of Mark was so confusing, because he wasn't great at trying to convince people to be a disciple of Jesus. For example, in the entire gospel, he only spends eight verses talking about the resurrection. You know, Easter, the huge celebratory part of the story of Jesus. For him, it's just the length of a footnote. Instead, Mark is so much more interested in telling people about how Jesus served, suffered, and surrendered. If I was his editor, I would have been like, hey, Can you lay a little bit off of the ultra-descriptive ways in which Jesus suffered? Are there any more fun miracles you could add in there instead? Did he ever multiply Korean barbecue orders? That would be a hit amongst the Koreans. But it didn't occur to me until very recently that Mark's not concerned with trying to convince people to be a disciple of Jesus. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to convince people that it is not through power Jesus is going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It is through serving, suffering, and surrendering. A surrender of his will and his desires for the will and desires of God. And that surrender is what we believe Jesus is calling us into in this season of Lent. For those of you who might not know, in the church calendar, this past Ash Wednesday marked the beginning of Lent, a time of 40 days leading up to Easter, where Christians typically reflect more intentionally around the life and death of Jesus. Our series for Lent this year is part two of our Kingdom Come series, and this series is titled Kingdom Come, Thy Will Be Done. And each week we will be focusing on something different that Jesus calls us to surrender. And we hope that this prayer of surrender that Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, thy will be done, would be our prayers as well. But I do want to clarify that this series is not about trying to figure out what the will of God is for your life, whether or not he wants you to go take the job at Google or Microsoft or go to Boston College or Boston University or to have Thai food or sushi for dinner. Those are all great and important things. But in this series, we're talking about the will of God for Jesus to surrender and give his life. But don't get me wrong, the invitation to surrender is not easy. 
Surrendering, giving up is especially unnatural for a culture in which we tell people from a young age that they should never give up. But Jesus didn't surrender and give up his will for God's because it was easy for him. Jesus himself admits that it isn't his desire to suffer and die. Why would anyone desire that? In fact, when Jesus prays that God take away this cup from him, he's so overwhelmed with stress in that garden that he is laying face down on the ground as he prays. In the Korean church, during early morning prayer services, if you saw someone sprawled out on the floor praying like that, you knew that prayer time was serious. But although surrendering our desires for God's desires isn't easy, Surrender is the currency of the kingdom of God. Because in God's kingdom, it isn't power, wealth, or status that gives you access. It's surrender. And so as we look back at our passage, let's see what God might be calling us to to surrender today. Let's go back to verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Jesus brings his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and we're told from scripture that it's a place where Jesus liked to pray. He was a frequent visitor there. He wasn't someone who just prayed when he was going through a hard time. He prayed so that when he encountered hard times that he may be more ready. And the disciples gathered here should have known more than anyone else that following after Jesus meant to serve, suffer, and surrender. After all, they've spent the most time with him. Wouldn't they be the most ideal model of what being a disciple should look like? But according to Mark, no. We don't have time to get into too much detail, but one scholar talks about how the most ideal model of discipleship actually in the Gospel of Mark are the nameless woman, the bleeding woman, the Syrophoenician woman, the poor widow, the woman who anointed Jesus. They are the ones that understand that following after Jesus means surrendering your life. You're all to him. My professor in seminary used to joke that we should change the lyrics of the hymn, I surrender all to I surrender some, because that's the reality of most people. And it's just like these disciples, who we will find later are fast asleep in the last moments of Jesus's life. And so we learn something really important here, that being around Jesus is not the same thing as becoming like Jesus Just because of our proximity to the gospel, our nearness to Bible studies and Sunday sermons, just because pastors go to conferences and talk to other pastors, being around the things of Jesus is not the same thing as becoming like Jesus. Even talking about Jesus isn't the same thing as becoming like Jesus. One scholar talks about how he always thought about being a disciple of Jesus meant to witness really loudly for Jesus, to tweet really loudly and try to convince people that he is the savior of the world. What Mark says throughout his gospel, however, is that actually, no. What you need to do is to go serve people and die. That's what it means to surrender. 
James and John, two of his disciples, just a few moments prior in scripture, asked Jesus to let them sit at the right and left hand of God, a position of power, showing that they don't understand what it means to be a follower, a disciple of Jesus. When they say that, Jesus responds to him in this way. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be the first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And later we see that the only people at the right hand and left hand of Jesus were the ones who were crucified on the cross next to him. A sign of what it looks like to sit at the right and left hand of Jesus. But before we go any further, I just want to pause and say, I'm sorry, especially if you're new to church and you're with us today trying to see what church is like. These are some heavy and weighty topics. And I kind of feel like Mark right now because I wish I had more fun miracles to talk about. Or even if you've been with us for a while, you might be thinking, John, can't you just tell us some more funny stories about how you went to a Patriots game by yourself the day after your wedding? But this is exactly what makes Jesus so worthy of following, of giving our lives to, because he came not to be served like the other things in this world, but he came to serve and to give his life for us. And that is who precisely Jesus is. In the midst of a really difficult situation for Jesus, we see why he is worthy of following. We see that Jesus surrenders his desires, for self-preservation. We literally see that because he first surrenders to the will of God and he lays down his physical life and well-being for mankind. But we see it in another light here in his interaction with James, John, and Peter. Let's read verses 33, 34. He took Peter, James, and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. Uh, the message translates this as he sank into a pit of suffocating darkness. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Oh, I, I've read this passage hundreds and hundreds of times, I feel like, but I noticed something new for the first time reading this passage as I was preparing this message. When Jesus starts to feel deeply distressed and filled with darkness and troubled, and when he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, I always thought that was an inner dialogue. I didn't realize he actually said those words out loud. It was the first time I noticed that Jesus was actually admitting that, admitting this to Peter, James, and John. Think about this with me for a minute. Jesus, their rabbi, their teacher, whom they respected and revered, was admitting to them that he feels so bad, that he's so stressed, that he feels like he could die right there. The Messiah, the savior of the world, was admitting his weakness that is completely radical. In our world today, we try everything we can to cover up our weaknesses, right? We even lie about the smallest things. 
because we want to preserve ourselves and what others think about us. Be honest with me. I'm going to list a few questions and just internally nod your head if you've lied about any of these questions before. Are you almost here? Did you get my email or text message? How tall are you? You know, this one actually became really problematic for me because I told people I was six feet um, before I actually was six feet. And in high school, there was a guy in my class who actually was six feet and he was like, hey, wait a second, I'm six feet. Why am I so much taller than you? I was like, oh, your doctor's charts must be off. You're probably, you know, 6'2", six 6'3". Six Some other questions we might be lying about. What do you think is your greatest weakness? My greatest weakness is that I try too hard. How old are you? How are you doing? And I know for the most part, these are harmless questions. And self-preservation in of itself isn't necessarily bad. It's a natural instinct of our bodies to try to protect itself. But the reason I would squib the truth on some of these questions is because I wanted to preserve my status at work or within a friend group. I didn't want to seem incompetent, delinquent, incapable, or weak. That's why CEOs or presidents of institutions constantly turn a blind eye to heinous crimes and activities so that they can preserve their company, so that they can keep their seat at their company. And so if the way of this world is self-preservation, trying to protect and, 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 and protect yourself, the way of the kingdom of God is vulnerability. The invitation to surrender our self-preservation is an invitation to live vulnerably, authentically, instead of trying to save your life, sharing your life. We see here that Jesus invites us into his life. He invites us into his weakness. He isn't trying to preserve an image that he wants people to have of him. He is real and authentic. Authentic. Would you share your life with Jesus? Talk to him. Let him know how you're feeling. Just like how Jesus confesses to the disciples that day, that moment, that he doesn't want to die this death. Would you be willing to share with Jesus what you might be going through? Resist the temptations to preserve yourself. Again, the currency of the kingdom of God is surrender. And when we surrender our desires for self-preservation, we get a glimpse of what the kingdom of God looks like. A place where there is no shame or weakness. I want to close by sharing a story a moment in time where the transformation of letting go of self-preservation changed my life. And it happened at a KFC. More specifically at a KFC in Korea. 
See, KFCs are different in Korea than they are in America. And when I say KFC, I don't mean Korean fried chicken. I'm talking about the great fried chicken establishment, Kentucky Fried Chicken, okay? In fact, a lot of these fast food chains that have made their way over to Korea, like Subway's and Dunkin' Donuts, are a bit more modernized and sleek in Korea than their counterparts in the States. Even so, I didn't think in a million years that the first time I would see my dad cry would be in a KFC sharing a number two crispy combo meal with coleslaw. Some people might be like, yeah, I get it. That KFC coleslaw brings me to tears. No, he didn't cry over his excitement of the food. Um, but seeing my dad cry that day took me by surprise because I had never seen him cry growing up. And I get that some people just aren't criers. Personally, I am. Um, I still remember the first time I cried. Ever since I saw Titanic in theaters, these tears have just never stopped flowing. But from my experience, uh, Asian dads from my parents' generation rarely displayed any emotions that could be perceived as weakness. No matter how much their home life, small business, relationships, finances were struggling, they would never let their kids come close to knowing their inner feelings. So it wasn't just that he cried at KFC that I was surprised. I was surprised because it was the first time I saw my dad in a vulnerable position. Earlier that day, I accidentally overheard my aunt say something about my grandma who had recently passed. We had lived with her for a few years prior because she had been paralyzed after a bad accident. And I was very close with her. So I shared with my dad what I heard from my aunt. I said, hey dad, I overheard uh, aunt saying that um, grandma wasn't your birth mother. That's ridiculous. That can't be true, right? As I looked up at my dad, I could see that his eyes were welling up with tears. I could tell he was fighting and struggling to hold them back. And when he finally spoke, his tears, unsure of where to go because it'd been so long since they'd formed, slowly started to stream down his face. It was the first time my dad told me that his birth mother passed away when he was really young. I'd never known that the grandma I had grown up with was his stepmom. And so when my dad began to share that story for the first time, the pain of loss, as a child navigating a new life without his mom, changed everything that I knew about my dad. I began to understand his hurts and his pains, why he acted in certain ways. I got an insight into an authentic version of my dad who was no longer trying to preserve himself. In our world today, 
instead of our different generations trying to fight about whose generation was tougher to grow up in, what if we were more vulnerable with each other? Wouldn't that maybe help us to understand each other, our hurts and our pains, why we might be the way that we are instead of trying to put up a front to preserve ourselves? And again, I know it's not easy. Even after this, I recently became aware of how I try to preserve, protect myself from my own kids. Recently, after a particularly long and difficult day, um, I had an emotional drive home. And so when I got home and parked the car, I sat there a few minutes and taking a few deep breaths and trying to wipe away any straight tears before I opened the door to my kids who I knew were eager to play with me. As I thought about why I did that, I think I initially thought to myself, well, it's because I don't want them to be sad. I don't want to bring my sadness to them. But if I'm being honest with myself, I think I might be feeling what my dad might have been feeling. I didn't want my kids to think that I'm susceptible to emotions, that I'm capable of having bad days, that there are moments that I'm feeling weak. I want my kids to think that I'm strong. I didn't want them to think that their dad, who they look up to, is capable of weakness. I wanted to preserve my aura of dad, whatever that meant. But Jesus offers us a vision of the kingdom of God, an upside down version of the kingdom of God, that if we give up our desires to God, we can express our emotions, that we can be weak, but that we would still be loved and cherished Would you be willing to go on this journey of surrender with me this Lent? Surrendering our all, surrendering our lives to Jesus, surrendering the desires to preserve our lives so that we may have the fullness of life in Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you are God who surrendered his life for us. That you gave up your life so that we may have life. Would that kingdom ethic be the life in which we live? Surrendering, giving up our lives for one another, opening up our hearts willing to surrender our self-protection and, and perseverance so that we may be able to follow after you. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would open up our hearts this Lent to be able to surrender the things of our hearts to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.